Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see faces in the frames until we can finally see you face to face. Um, I'm trying to decide how to get this on the side, not the front. Well, about five years ago, uh, the family and I were trying to find a movie for a movie night, and we decided to watch God Is Not Dead that had just been released on Amazon Prime Video. And if you haven't seen it, the plot involves a freshman who goes to college, and in his first day of a philosophy course, this atheistic professor who hates God passes around a sheet at the top of which says, God is dead, and requires all the students to sign their names affirming that they don't believe in the existence of God. And it moves with really discouraging rapidity up and down the aisles until it reaches one young man named Josh who won't sign it because he's a believer. He's a Christian. And when he protests, the philosopher professor calls him out and challenges him to try to defend the existence of God at the end of the next three classes. And so he begins to do so. And it turns out, as you would expect, when a professional philosopher in his own classroom, in his area of expertise, puts an 18-year-old up front, and uh, the young man's girlfriend is encouraging him to drop this vain debate. And it's going to hurt his academic prospects, his professional prospects. And he quotes C.S. Lewis and says, until the risk is real, we don't know if our faith is real. And she says, you're going to let a yearbook quote ruin our future? And she breaks up with him. She drops him. And he persists in trying to prove in this very hostile environment that there is a God. And in the final scene, as the classroom uh, debate comes to an end, this foreign exchange student from Asia, whose father had forbidden him to convert to Christianity, lest it hurt his prospects back home, stands up and says, God does exist. And then other students begin to stand up and also support and affirm that God does exist. And then their movie ends with this concert where the newsboys acknowledge Josh and his bold stand for Christ. And uh, it was a very encouraging, inspiring movie. And as the credits began to run, uh, my son says, hey, can we watch that again? And I said, well, sure, that'd be great. He goes, no, no, I mean, now. Can we watch it again right now? And so we did. Rachel, my daughter, popped some fresh popcorn, and we back-to-back -back the movie. First time, only time that we've ever done that. And it's not that the acting and the writing and the cinematography was that stellar. Now, it won no awards, but there was something compelling about a courageous conviction that was unwilling to back down despite the pressure to do so. Uh, there's something that encourages us when courageous saints stand up, like a Martin Luther, when he's standing there before the authorities of the church and the state and says, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me, amen. Or when Polycarp, the first recorded martyr that we have in the second century church, uh, we have an account of his martyrdom when this old man is brought into the arena and the crowds are shouting his name, calling for his death, telling him to be fed to the animals. And he stands unyielding. And when the uh, Roman official supervising the execution pleads with him to acknowledge Caesar, he says, 80 and six years I have served my king and he has done me no long. How can I now blaspheme my Jesus who has served me so faithfully? And this elderly man uh, goes to his death uh, in the flames and being stabbed to death in front of the murderous mobs. And your heart swells and your spirit soars to realize there could be saints like that.
And that's our story today of three Hebrew youths with strange sounding names who appear in three scenes in scripture. And together they have combined three sentences attributed to their name. And yet they've made their way into children's Bibles and Sunday school classes and veggie tale scripts and Bob Marley songs and Martin Luther King found inspiration in a Birmingham jail from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whose tale we read in Daniel chapter three. So if you have your Bibles at home, I invite you to turn them to the book of Daniel chapter three. And we're going to see our text has five movements, the King Nebuchadnezzar's idolatrous demand, God's servant's faithful refusal to meet that demand, the king's fiery furnace, God's miraculous deliverance, and the king's God-honoring decree. And through this story, this account of the fireproof faith of the three Hebrew youth, we're going to get five lessons in how we can maintain our devotion to God under duress. Namely, that the world demands that people worship its gods, that God's servants always refuse to worship the world's gods that the world persecutes those who refuse to worship its gods, but God is able to preserve his servants through persecution, and God uses his servants' faithfulness to glorify himself. So we see in Daniel 3, 1 and 2, that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width six cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, seemingly Nebuchadnezzar, who had that dream of the statue in the previous chapter, was inspired by this account to make a statue of his own, and perhaps resisting God's foreshadowing a prophecy that there was going to be a turning over of the golden head, which Daniel or which Nebuchadnezzar represented, into other kingdoms. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to gold plate this entire statue. Uh, we're not told whether it's of Nebuchadnezzar or of a Babylonian deity. What we are told is its enormous size. Uh, a cubit is 18 inches, and so 60 would be 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. Uh, to put that into perspective, if you've uh, driven I-45 going to and from uh, Houston, just south of Huntsville, you see the statue of Sam Houston that is actually 67 feet tall on a 10 foot base. And so this statue would have been two stories taller than Sam Houston outside of Huntsville. Uh, the proportions, if he's nine feet wide, 10 times higher than you are wide or a little bit elongated. And so some wonder if perhaps that includes the base, we're not sure, but it was staggering in size. It was brilliant in appearance. And it was located on a plain that was somewhere between six and 15 miles, we don't know the precise location, outside the capital city of Babylon. So it would have been accessible within a day's walk, and it would have been perhaps visible on a sunny day, this bright, bright light reflecting the sun. Uh, the inspiration might have been the dream. The motivation might have also been to unify a diverse people around a new king by having them acknowledge their allegiance to him by going through a common religious ceremony. So once the statue's been erected, we see the king summon his governmental bureaucracies, his administrators, to come to the plain of Dura. Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, 
the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they came and they stood. And so these are in order. And Jeremy, if we can move to the next slide, we're in verses two and there you go. Uh, these are the names of the governmental officials that would have been going from the, the higher authority down to the lower authority. And so in verses two and three, this would be like the president summoning the senators and the congressmen and the governors and the county judges and the mayors and the city council and the sheriffs. So moving from the higher authority down to the lower authorities, they're all summoned to assemble at the base of the statue. And when they gather, he issues his command. To you, the command is given, O peoples, nations and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. So we see that this was a very diverse group of administrators from every peoples, nations, and language. Because like with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Babylonians, when they conquered another people, would take some of their best and brightest, educate them in the Babylonian language and ways, and then insert them into their administration. And so now with this audible display, with all these different instruments, the people were to fall down and acknowledge or to give homage to this massive splendid statue that Nebuchadnezzar had built. And if they refused, then they would be thrown into the furnace that had been used to cast the statue, to melt the gold that plated the statue. And so once the furnace had been used and the statue had been erected, Nebuchadnezzar had given instructions to keep it fueled, to keep the fire going as a deterrent from any who might think to resist the decree of the king. And so in verse seven, at that time when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipes, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, the nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped or gave homage to the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So here we see the principle that's true in all times and ages, that the world demands we worship its gods, and most people do. Now, at various times, this has been overt. And so there was a time in the third century when the Roman emperor ordered every citizen, every resident of the Roman Empire, to offer a sacrifice to Caesar as God, as Lord. And if you didn't, you could be persecuted, your home and property could be confiscated, you could be tortured, and you could be killed. And you would actually go and before a Roman public official offer the sacrifice, say the word, Caesar is Lord, and they would give you a receipt, a labelli, that would show that you had actually met the command. And if you didn't, there were dire consequences. Uh, at other times, under the communist countries, you had to acknowledge the ruling authorities, or you would be subject to tremendous persecution. Uh, today, it's not that overt yet in America, but it exists nonetheless. Uh, an author by the name of Neil Gaiman wrote a book called American Gods, 
And in it, he imagines what it would be like if the old Norse gods of Odin and Thor found themselves in conflict in a power competition with the American gods, like lust, like media, like technology boy, like um, a god representing the stock market, like Mr. World, because we in America have our own divinities and deities of affluence and image and indulgence. And in various ways, there is pressure to give homage to them, uh, political pressure, that if you don't go through these ceremonies and support these causes and sign these statements, then you're suspect. Uh, you may not get hired, you may not be approved of, you may not be promoted. In academic environments, you may not be accepted, you may not be hired, you may not be published, you may not be promoted. In professional settings, again, you may not be hired, you may not advance unless you give homage in various ways to the current gods that our culture demands. If you don't sign this, attend this, raise your fist at a restaurant, put this on your Facebook page, give to this cause, support this in some ways, acknowledge that you're one of us, then you'll be treated as an outsider and you will be shamed or you will be canceled. And so every nation, every culture, every age has its gods and they don't leave us alone. They demand that we worship them because when everybody else falls down prostrate, the Christians who refuse to kneel stand out by still standing up. And so this is our second point, is that God's servants faithfully refuse to bow down to the world's gods. We see, for example, in verse 8, that the Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. And they responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, etc., is to fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever doesn't is to be cast into the furnace of the blazing fire. But there are certain Jews. So they seem to make this racial, these Chaldeans, these Babylonians, these expert in Babylonian religion, because unnecessarily they specifically mention Jews twice. And then they make it personal. There are certain Jews whom you appointed, because when Daniel had been elevated, he had also then elevated Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When Daniel had resisted the king's diet in chapter one and then been honored and promoted, so did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And now they point out that these people, these captives that you honored ungratefully, defiantly, publicly, have refused to give tribute to you. You appointed them. By name, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the king actually named them. These are their Babylonian names, not their Hebrew names. These men, O king, have disregarded you, personal. They do not serve your gods. He doesn't say our gods. They didn't serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. In other words, they make it very personal. You granted favor, you appointed, you promoted, and in their ingratitude and in their defiance, they refuse your command to honor your gods and to honor your image in order to get them in trouble. And so the king calls them to verify that this is in fact the case. Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, 
Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he knows them, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, it's significant that he doesn't summarily execute them as he had threatened. Uh, the decree was very clear. You either fall down when the music plays or you pay the piper. I'll cast you into the furnace. But these were very capable administrators. He likely associates them with Daniel. And by the way, it's interesting that Daniel isn't mentioned in this chapter. Uh, commentators speculate as to where's Dan? And some think that maybe he was left in the capital city while the king went to the plain. Uh, others wonder if perhaps the king valued Daniel being able to interpret his dream and reveal his dream. And so he exempted him from something that he knew that he wouldn't do. We don't know. Uh, it is interesting, first of all, that not every believer is required to endure every trial. And God exempts us on occasion, which is delightful. And also that we're going to see the three Hebrew youths stand up for their faith without Daniel, even without their leader. So he calls them before and he questions them directly. Is it true? And then he gives them an out. If you're ready, when you hear the music, I'll have them do a private playing for you to fall down, worship the image very well. There'll be no consequences. I won't hold it against you. I'm not going to cancel you out. But if you don't, you will be immediately cast into the midst of the furnace of the blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Daniel, in the previous chapter, had revealed that his God, the God of the Israels, was able to reveal dreams, to able to reveal mysteries. He was a God of wisdom. But Nebuchadnezzar had not yet seen that he is also a God of power. And the assumption was that if the Babylonians had conquered the Israelis, that the Babylonian gods were mightier than the Israeli gods. And so who would be able to snatch them out of Nebuchadnezzar's hands if Israel's gods didn't deliver them from Nebuchadnezzar when he sacked the city and took them captive? And of course, this is going to set up the demonstration of God's power in the account to follow. And here we get the loan words in recorded scripture of these three brave youths. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. Uh, you know that the Jews don't eat defiled food. Uh, we don't yield to pagan ways. And we're not going to bend the knee to another god. If it be so, if you cast us into the furnace, our god whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They're not defiant, but they're determined. Our course is set. You ask what God is able to deliver, our God is able to deliver. And we expect that he will. But if he doesn't, we're not going to honor your gods and we're not going to give homage to your image because we are servants of the king. And to them, the outcome is indifferent because their conviction is certain. Their determination is set. And it doesn't matter what results from it because they are not going to be unfaithful to their faithful God. Uh, there was an early symbol of the American Baptist Missionary Society that was a coin. It was a medallion with three segments. And in one of the segments was an ox. And in the other two segments was an altar or a yoke. And the slogan of the society was, 
ready for either. So for the missionaries going out in these early stages where Adoniram Judson went into Burma and people were going for the first time into the subcontinent of Asia, they were the oxen. They were there just as a animal of labor. And if God wanted to use them by harnessing them to a yoke, then they were fully ready for that. If instead he chose to sacrifice them on an altar and let them be martyrs for the faith, they were ready for that either. They had enlisted. And it didn't matter to them whether they had survived the engagement or not, because they were going to serve and they were going to commit themselves to the cause and they're unyielding. And the principle for us to apply is that God's people always refuse to worship the world's God. In the scripture reading that Claire read for us from the Ten Commandments, God is our Redeemer. He delivered Israel from Egypt. He delivered us out of the hands of sin and Satan. And he demands and deserves exclusive worship. We don't get God plus. We don't get Jesus plus. It is only God, only Jesus. And we do not bend the knee or bow to another, ever. Uh, there was several years ago an occasion when my wife's grandfather passed. And so we drove the family to Los Angeles to be there for the memorial service. And as we gathered, they were describing to us what it was going to be like. We'd never been to a Vietnamese funeral before. And they said, okay, this is a three-day event. And we're going to go to the funeral home. And there the Buddhist monks are going to be leading the family through a series of prayers and chants and kneelings. And so when the Buddhists bow, you bow. And when the Buddhists tell you to say this, you say this. And when they chant, you do this. And they were going to walk us through this participation in a Buddhist funeral. And Nock and I had to say to them, we can't do that. Uh, we want to honor the grandfather. We're in no way trying to embarrass the family, to shame the family, to defy the tradition. But we're Christians. And our God demands exclusive worship. We can't bow to another God. We can't pray to the ancestors. We can't offer incense to the deceased. We can't pray to these Buddhist beings. We can't participate. And this led to a number of uncomfortable conversations. But for us, the course was clear. Uh, we would have been happy just to simply not be involved, but they didn't want to just leave us out of it. And so there were numerous conversations. But for us, it didn't matter how those conversations turned out. We can't pray to another God. We can't bend the knee to another God. We had the same conversation when we were married and went through a Vietnamese wedding ceremony and they wanted not to bow to the ancestors and to ask their blessing on the wedding. And we had to explain to them, we can't do that. And so we, before the ceremony, explained my wife will do these gestures, but this is not what she means. This is what she does mean because she's a Christian. When her mom passed, we had to have the same round of conversations with the people over her mom's funeral. We cannot bow at this time. We cannot pray to these gods. We cannot ask the ancestors for their blessing because we're Christian. And we mean no disrespect and we don't mean any harm. But for us, it's not an option. Christians don't worship other gods, period. And it doesn't matter what the consequences are that follow. And we're prepared to face those. It's like Eric Little, the Scottish runner who was starred in Chariots of Fire, when he found out that his heat was going to be run on a Sunday and for him honoring the Sabbath was God's will and he would not run on a Sunday. 
And it didn't matter what the Prince of Wales said. It didn't matter what pressure was brought to bear. It didn't matter after all that training that he was going to forfeit his opportunity to run in the Olympics. For him, it was clear cut. I will not run on the Sunday. And I don't care what price I'm going to pay for that conviction. For me, I'm standing firm, which is what the Christians do. And the king then responds by firing up the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's interesting, when they refuse to alter their position, his appearance is altered. He's enraged, and he gives orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Uh, we know that what these furnaces would have been like. We have remnants archaeologically of them, and the estimation is that they would fuel to about 1800 degrees Fahrenheit. And so to put that in perspective, uh, my wife made banana nut muffins this morning at an oven set at 350 degrees. Uh, if you have a giant green egg, those get to about 600 degrees. If you have an industrial oven, some of them might get as high as 1600 degrees. This oven would have gotten to likely 1800 degrees Fahrenheit. And he commands certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of the blazing fire. There's no way these youth, these administrators, are going to overcome these warriors, these soldiers. And they're bound head and foot. They're carried up. And then they're going to be tossed in. These men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, their clothes, and cast bodily into the midst of the furnace. Uh, what we think this would have looked like is one of the old-fashioned milk bottles where there would have been an opening at the top where the ore could have been put in to be smelted, but there would have also, also been a door at the base in order to put in the coal or the wood or whatever would have been used to heat the furnace. They're dropped in bodily from the top. The king will look in from the side a little bit later as we'll see. And because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flames of the fire slew the men who carried up the three. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of a blazing fire, still tied up, utterly helpless, not even able to walk, bound, dropped by the soldiers into the flames that were so hot, they killed the soldiers who were at the aperture. And so we see that the world will persecute those who refuse to worship its gods. There often is a price to pay, and Christians through the ages, God's servants through the ages, have gladly paid that price. It's estimated that 70 million Christians have been martyred for their faith since our Lord went to the cross for us. That's more than the population of France, more than the population of the United Kingdom, more than the population of Thailand, and half of those have died since the 20th century. Uh, this isn't something that just occurred under the Roman Empire or under the German tribes that conquered the Roman Empire or under Muslim nations during the time when uh, Islam rose and took over. This is a current phenomenon. In fact, according to the estimates of Gordon Conwell Seminary that has an institution that tracks many of these facts and data, in the 21st century, in our own last two decades, an estimated 100,000 to 160,000 Christians a year die for their faith. On average, every month, 322 Christians are murdered for their faith. 214 churches are destroyed and 722 or 772 
targeted acts of violence are aimed at Christians. This is very much a live phenomena, and it's no longer a foreign phenomena. Here in America, we see bakers and florists lose their vocations because they won't abandon their convictions. Uh, we see Christian professors having to hide their faith to advance in their profession. We see people, if you are a evangelical, you're not going to be hired in certain places. Uh, it's thought in certain, well, even here in Denton, there was a gentleman, a pharmacist, who had to change his companies because they demanded that he prescribe abortion pills. His conviction was that God is the source of life, even in the womb, and he wouldn't do it. And it cost him his job. And this was over two decades ago. And it's very much more so the case today. And so the reality is that there is a price to pay for fidelity, for faithfulness. And God's people have been willing to pay it. Um, sometimes God is gracious to deliver. At other times, there comes a time when he allows us to glorify him in a death. So Peter was delivered miraculously from the jail on one occasion. But at the end of his life, he was crucified upside down for his faith. Paul experienced miraculous deliveries until the time came when he was beheaded. Uh, in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, we have all these accounts of God miraculously preserving Joseph and Abram and Moses and all these saints. But at the end, there were those who died for their faith. And that was done in God's will too. And so we will not bend the knee to another God. And oftentimes there will be very real consequences to pay for that decision. And we have to be willing to pay them. We do so in the faith that God is able to miraculously deliver and preserve in and through those times of persecution. And so in verse 24, Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. And he said to his officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? Certainly, O king. Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a, a son of the gods. So looking in through the side opening, Nebuchadnezzar sees not three, but four. And this verse, he characterizes it using Babylonian language, a son of a god, some kind of divine being. Uh, later, he'll call it an angel. And we don't know if this was an angel. Uh, Jewish tradition associates it with Gabriel. Christian tradition associates it with the pre-incarnate Christ. The text doesn't tell us. What it does tell us is God sent a deliverer to be there among the three, to preserve them from the flames. And the only thing loosed is their bonds. And now they're walking around freely. And as they emerged, they emerged unscathed. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of the blazing fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants. And notice how he calls God now, you servants of the Most High God. Come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. And the witnesses of this, this was done publicly before all the administrators and all the members of the bureaucracy of the Babylonian Empire see this. They went in, bound, they emerge free. And the fire had no effect on their bodies. Not a hair was singed. Their trousers were not damaged. They didn't even have the smell of the fire clinging to their clothes because God had preserved them entirely. And he is able to do so and has often done so. 
so uh, Papa Mel in his own missionary journeys can share accounts of God's miraculous protection. And there was a time that he and Patty came down with a terrible stomach ailment that kept them from catching a flight. And that flight later went down. And it was that providential illness that preserved their life. Uh, Mel will share another story of a time when there were assassins in the Philippines shooting Christians, shooting Americans. And God preserved Mel and Patty when they were confronted by three youths and someone reached into his garment for a gun. And then God frightened them off. Uh, Corey Tinboom tells the account of her family hiding under a secret place in the kitchen of their home in Holland and the guards coming to search the home and their sister who remained outside who refused to lie because that was her conviction. When the Nazi guard said, where is your family? Her honest response was underneath the kitchen floor. And as the family, it couldn't believe that she wouldn't fib to save their lives. Uh, the Nazis thought they were joking, thought she was joking, being disrespectful, and left without searching for a secret room. Uh, Corey Ten Boom gives many accounts of their miraculous preservation in the concentration camps. And so God is able to deliver. God is able to preserve. He has often done so. He continues to do so. And those especially who are involved in missionary work can give testimony to the times of God miraculously hiding people from searching officials of allowing them a favor when they expected a judgment. God continues to protect and to preserve. But if he doesn't, if he chooses not to, our stance is still the same because then God delivers us unto himself. In this instance, God delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, but he's also going to deliver all of us in Christ from the grave someday. And we are going to be delivered to his side when our time comes whether that's in illness or in battle or as a martyr, we all have an allotted number of days and we are all indestructible until our providentially decreed day comes. So we live in boldness, trusting in God to preserve us or to bring us to himself. Because we know, and this is our fifth point, that God will honor and glorify himself through the martyrdom of his saints. So Nebuchadnezzar responded very differently than before. And said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel, delivered his servants. And notice what impressed him before God's delivery. The servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's, king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Uh, we have accounts of Christian martyrs recorded in Eusebius's church history, our first church historian, along with Fox's Book of Martyrs. And there was one occasion where the Romans were persecuting the church yet again. And a number of females had gone very boldly and courageously to their death in a public setting, being offered to animals and other gruesome tortures. And one of the Roman officials is recorded as saying, what women these Christians have. And they were so bold in their service and their dedication and their commitment that it struck a chord with them. And we have conversions that were recorded from those who watched the Christians suffer, so much so that Tertullian, a North African church father, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, that as their blood fell in drops to the ground, that brought up new conversions, that their testimony led others to want to know the God that inspired such loyalty, such allegiance in people willing to suffer so greatly for him. And therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation or tongue, the same group that he had summoned, that he had demanded to worship the idol, 
that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn, and here's his favorite threat, limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, because there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. You remember earlier he had asked the question, what God is there that can deliver you from my hands? And the answer, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And now he demands that all of his officials, all of his administrators, all of his bureaucrats not demean the name of God. And just consider how many lives were blessed because of the testimony of these three. Every Jew in Babylon benefited from their bravery. All of the Hebrews benefited and were blessed by their courageous stance. And now all of God's people were able to enjoy some measure of protection and ability of freedom of worship because of the stance of three youths who refused to bow the knee to a foreign God, we have no notion of how our bold stance in a classroom, in a lunchroom, in a workplace environment, online, how God will use that to glorify himself and to bless and to encourage his saints. As we conclude, what were the lessons of devotion under dress? The world will demand that people worship its gods, but God's servants always refuse to worship the world's gods. And the world will persecute us for refusing to give homage to its divinities. But God is able to preserve us through the world's persecution, either saving us from it, protecting us in it, or delivering us through it. And God will use his servant's faithfulness to glorify himself. So some lessons as our own day of testing and trials come. First of all, we need to commit ourselves now that we will only worship God. Uh, our course is clear. Our commitment is made. Our allegiance is solemn. When we give our lives to Christ, we are giving our, our vow, our oath, our integrity to worshiping him only. There is an exclusive wedding of the bride of Christ with the bridegroom. There is an exclusive allegiance to our king, and we won't give aid and comfort to the enemy. We will not acknowledge another, and we need to know up front that that is the standard, that is the demand, that is the requirement, and we make that commitment before the time of trial comes. Secondly, we can't live in fear of what the world threatens. And again, whether that's just simply uh, being embarrassed by our peers, whether that's being shamed in public, or whether that's political pressure, whether that's professional consequences, or whether that actually someday leads to physical torture, imprisonment, or martyrdom. We can't live in fear of the world. Jesus said, do not fear those who can harm the body, but fear God, who is able to cast the soul into hell or deliver ours into heaven but we can't live in fear of what the world may do to us. Our commitment is certain. We entrust ourselves entirely to God. Like the oxen on the medallion, if we live, then we are yoked to his harness to do whatever labor he requires of us. If he chooses to honor himself through our death, then we're ready to do that as well. But in any event, we are committed to God and we entrust ourselves to God to do with us what he will. Jesus desired that the cup of God's wrath pass from him. He didn't desire to be crucified. But more important than his deliverance from pain and suffering was that God's will be done. And that's our prayer as well.
Fourthly, we prepare for large trials by being faithful in smaller trials. Uh, this wasn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's first trial. You remember that when they were captured with Daniel in chapter one, and now they offered food that would have defiled the Jews, even then they said, we're not going to eat that food. And they stood with Daniel in not compromising God's requirements for them, even when it had been inconvenient to do so. You remember when Daniel was challenged, when they were all going to die, when the king's dream couldn't been revealed by the king's magicians, and Daniel gathered together and they prayed with Daniel. And they saw that God delivered Daniel by giving him the dream and allowing him to interpret it. They had experienced God's protection and deliverance. And so when it came time for their solo trial, they had seen God show himself faithful. They had already bolstered their ability to stand firm. They had raised their bravery and courage. And so small acts of refusing to just silently give in to a lie, to go along with the crowd, to hide our faith, to give token worship when the world demands us that we acknowledge their deities. When we resist those temptations, when we resist those pressures, we are building up our resistance for when the greater trials come. Next, we go through the trials of faith together. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are always mentioned as a trio in chapter one, in chapter two, in chapter three. They're always together. They're supporting one another. They're encouraging one another. When Daniel was going to go alone before the king, they were praying for Daniel. They were with him even when he had to stand alone. And so we as Christians have to stand with one another. We have to stand up for one another. And when we see one of our own being persecuted, being shamed, being pressured, that we come and stand with them. We identify with them. We refuse to cancel them out. We refuse to avoid their business. We refuse to capitulate. But we stand with, we pray with, we support. And if need be, we go and visit them when they're in jail, when they're in prison, when they're being persecuted. We write letters to those who are imprisoning and jailing them and persecuting them. We have to learn to stand together as a people, as a family, especially in the days that are coming in our own country as they've been in so many other countries. We go through this together. We're a family, we're a people. And finally, as we've seen throughout, uh, we stay faithful and hopeful in difficult times. For God is sovereign and he will ultimately set all things right. One final word of encouragement, that as we bolster our courage by small acts of faithfulness, inevitably there's going to be instances of faithlessness. And the Bible is realistic that not all of us have the courage of a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that's why it's so honest when we see Peter denying Christ, when we see Peter capitulating to pressure when the Jews visited the church in Galatia and he moved away from the Gentiles' cafeteria table and only ate with the Jews. And we see Peter's moments of boldness. And we see Peter's moments of failure. Uh, we see the apostles emboldened for their faith, 11 of the 12 died martyrs' deaths, and John suffered uh, exile on the island of Patmos. But we also saw them flee and scatter. We see Mark abandon the first missionary journey, but we see Paul summon him back at the end of his life. One of my favorite verses is in Matthew 28, right before the Great Commission, that is Jesus, the resurrected Christ, is there with his disciples about to send them out into the nations. 
It says some were doubting. And the Bible's real, that these are real human beings. And there's real doubts and there's moments of real terror. And that's okay. That when we fail and when we falter, we ask forgiveness. And then we resolve to do better next time. And when the next time comes, we turn to God and say, God, I am a cowardly and a frail and a weak person. And left to my own strength, I will deny you and abandon you. Grant me the grace to be faithful. And then we look to our brothers and sisters around us to bolster our courage, to pray for us. You know, Paul, the great bold missionary for the faith, explicitly tells the officials, pray for me. The boldness be given to me. And we all need that. None of us are as strong as we think we are. So don't be discouraged when you doubt. Don't give up when you fail. Persist, persevere, and look for God to grant us greater grace the next time. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this beautiful text. We thank you that you have memorialized these three old youths that we know very little about other than they were captured and they refused to defile themselves with the king's food. And when Daniel was in need, they gathered in prayer. And then when they stood with all their fellow administrators and everybody else fell prostrate to give homage, they kept standing. They refused to bend the knee. And when the king called them for a personal interrogation and they were given a chance to save their lives, that they gave that beautiful expression of faith that God is able to deliver. But even if he doesn't, we are not worshiping your gods and we are not bowing to your statue. So we thank you for the faith that you give ordinary men. They didn't have different DNA than us. They didn't have different genes than us. They love their Lord, committed themselves to you, and you grant them grace in the moment of their trial. And in doing so, have given us a great encouragement for when our trials come. So Lord, strengthen our convictions, strengthen our love, embolden us, unite us as a people, bring us together as a family to help one another, to support one another, to identify with one another when one gets isolated and allow us to glorify you with our courage, with our allegiance, with our unswerving loyalty, and if need be, with our suffering and death. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.